This is Chronic Pain, and I'm Brent Headley. This week I had the fortune of sitting down with Angelo Ratnachandra. He's one of Australia's leading physiotherapists and he's an all-round great guy, but he's also got an incredible personal story about his own management of chronic pain. I hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did. Uh, thanks for being with us today, mate. This is a, a chat that I've been really looking forward to. Um, we spoke a number of weeks ago about the, the whole concept of the Mr. Pain podcast, and um, and yeah, you were someone who was really excited about it. So um, yeah, it's been a real a real privilege for us to be able to have this chat so early on in the piece. Um, look, today we've got about twenty five minutes. Um, we're really keen to learn about you and and your story and and i guess sort of how you you um you've you've arrived um living with chronic pain and i guess sort of manage it and the tips and tricks and all those sorts of things that um are also helpful for our audience so um you've got an incredible life story i know you're a dad of three i know you're based in geelong in in victoria um and uh but there's there's a lot more to you than that um so i'm going to throw it over to you to give yourself a little bit of an introduction and 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 perhaps share I guess uh, some of those those important things that have shaped um, your journey journey with pain. Thanks, Fred. Yeah, I look. Um, uh, I guess I start back saying, you know, I became a physio back uh, about twenty two years ago now, and um, you know, started working with people with pain early on, and just saw that you know, pain is really complex. It's not as easy as just fixing a body part. In some cases, it, there there is a it's a whole experience and that's if nothing else I learned that but um through the years um I was working overseas as well I, I obviously graduated in Melbourne and worked in Melbourne started my career in Melbourne and then went overseas to do the backpacking thing over in the UK and ended up uh falling into working in mental health which is quite interesting in the context of pain and really uh, opened my eyes up to this whole new world of physiotherapy which is more than just the physical therapy aspect of it um, then went into working at an internationally renowned pain clinic called Input Pain Management at St Thomas's Hospital, which is um, directly opposite House of Parliament uh, in the UK. So it's a pretty nice place to work. Um, bet. But really, that's where my strength grew. And ironically, during my time specialising, I guess, in this area of chronic pain, I had some personal journey, life journeys. Um, you know, uh, 23rd of June, 2006 i was uh, sitting at home watching tv uh in my house share house that i was in in east london and someone broke the window and threw a molotov cocktail and set me alight wow. in a case of mistake identity so um there's not a lot of room to stop drop and roll as we were taught when we were kids so i had to use my hands to put the fire out that was all over me and my face and i was very fortunate that i had the presence of mind to run upstairs and into the shower and scream out to the to my housemates to call an ambulance and the fire brigade because the couch was on fire the whole living room was on fire um, wow. they just got the wrong house they just got the wrong house mate and was so, that just um, as you say just instinctive like i've been hit quickly throw me in a shout like that that's how it, as quickly as it played out like that well well it was actually funny you say that because it actually was the opposite it was exactly like the movies you know how it goes in slow motion at that very point i could actually see this petrol bomb coming at my head and there wasn't a lot i could do except just do this wow and basically deflected off my arm hit the back wall and smash and i got shouting petrol and next thing i knew i was i was on, I was on fire wow um so yeah so and then everything was really quick after that and i just knew i had to put the fire out and then 
I was very fortunate to have the presence of mind say, got to get in water, cold water. And, mm. and, and that's what I tried to do. Yeah. I'm sure you've told that story thousands of times. It's, um, yeah, it's an incredible, it's an, just an incredible circumstance, isn't it? The irony of it all was in a way, and, and without sounding a hero, I'm, I'm glad that they got our house because the house they intended actually had an eight year old girl and her mum in the living room, not even the guy that they wanted. So this was a turf war thing between, amongst teenagers. Um, there was a lots of council estate homes and stuff and flats around where I lived. Um, great culturally in terms of ethnic experience, but uh, probably not the safest neighborhood. But um, but yeah, so you know, I would I could only imagine what would have happened if it was an eight year old girl and her mum that got hit with a petrol bomb. So um, it was just a wrong blue door. But um, yeah, I'm shaking this, my this head. Story. You can't see this on a podcast. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at you on a screen, but um, yeah, clearly, yeah, I'm just in amazement. That's uh, that's incredible. Uh, the, uh, one last bit of um, interesting trivia. Well, I did. We did a group. My flatmates and I. Um, I, I lived in with a house with three other girls. Unfortunately. We all were home, but none of them were in the living room, so they don't have to deal with, you know, hair care products in their hair or anything like that. That, that you know, that normally would actually worsen the situation for me. It was just I had a shaved head, so it was good. Um, but when we googled as to what happened, we found out that in the 1940s, Gandhi actually visited that very house wow. and had tea in the very living room I was in because it used to be an orphanage run by two sisters. And the, the orphans used to call him Uncle Gandhi. Can you wow. believe that? <laughs> in this house in East London. So, There's um, layers upon layers upon layers on this side, mate. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I had that and, um, you know, I was in a burns unit for over a week in intensive sort of care. Um, and then subsequently had about six months of outpatients three times a week where they had to remove my dressing um, uh, and clean my wounds out. And then I had to have a skin graft as well on my arm. Um, you know, I was very fortunate that a patch on my left arm saved my left arm. Otherwise, I would have had to amputate and I'm left-handed. So wow. as a physio, you know, and the trauma of it all, uh, I was, in a way, I was in a good place having worked in pain management to recognise I needed to get the counselling and the psychological support. You know, as mid-20s, you know, young bloke, you don't think about reaching out to a psychologist. No, nah, it'll be right. Day, but, yeah, you know, get the be body right. better and, yeah, we'll, we'll be fine, yeah. Um, I started noticing I couldn't keep my attention with one person. I was darting my eyes around because my body was feeling threatened by my environment. And so got the necessary help. And then, you know, we started continue to work towards recovery. But it was ironic that eight months prior to that incident, um, I had a collapsed lung, what they call the spontaneous pneumothorax. I woke up one day and my left lung just went. Um, and okay. I was short of breath, but I don't fit the criteria for a spontaneous pneumothorax. Normally, it's long, uh, tall, thin, redheads, and um, <laughs> I don't, okay. and teenagers and basketballers. Well, I was none of the above. <laughs> we get, we'll have to put a photo up of you alongside the podcast. You, you, you're certainly not that, but I can see anyway. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I went to work for four days thinking it's just a muscle strain in my ribs and then flew overseas for a weekend away with friends and flew back, which is the worst thing you could do with a collapsed lung is fly or deep sea dive because of the cabin pressures. Um, so my left lung had collapsed less than 40% and they gave me 48 hours to live. So I ended up five weeks in hospital with life-saving lung surgery. And, um, and then subsequently, eight months later, I had this happened. And so... 
yeah, it was a pretty tumultuous time for me, but um, I still loved London. It wasn't that I left London because of that. I think yeah. it was just I was just exhausted with all the recovery, rehab, you know, being told you might not wake up from surgery and, and all of that sort of stuff. So That's well, a significant um, so amount I, of time in the hospital, I would imagine, too, the, the, the combination of those two incidents or issues. Um, yeah, so you'd be quite familiar with the, the, uh, the hospital system over there as well, I would imagine. Yeah, well, exactly. And, um, you know, and you just, it was just, you don't know when you're going to get better. And I think that's part of the thing. It wasn't a procedure you're going for. Um, and, it was, and it was pretty complex with the lung as well as the burns. Um, so, um, yes, yeah, but subsequently I came back and, you know, started working in occupational health and rehab and, and really focused on chronic pain because I, I subsequently had persistent pain as a result of my injuries. Um, and it was an area of interest, and I just didn't feel that in Victoria at the time there was enough of these sort of practitioners. So I set up a clinic called Beyond Pain, um, which has subsequently grown, which I'm very proud of and, and grateful for, that we got some good people on board to help us out. Um, but then in 2011, just before, and, and this is where pain impacts all aspects of your life and certainly um, incidents, but uh, I, had a, I had a very rare cancer growing on my calf, wow. um, the chance of getting it is less than 1%. And they had to um, – initially it was misdiagnosed because they didn't know it was a cancer. Uh, they just thought it was a benign tumour. So um, I had surgery to remove it. It was a 5-centimetre tumour out of my left calf. And wow. it's only once they did the test um, after the surgery, the, the specimen test uh, for the lab, that they found out it was a cancer. So I subsequently got transferred to Peter Mac here in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, and they decided to do what they called a wide excision surgery um, because they weren't sure whether chemotherapy or radiation would work because they, they just didn't have data on this type of cancer. So ever since then, um, I've been going back every six months to get my MRIs, but it was diagnosed in the final trimester oh. of my my, daughter, my my wife's first first pregnancy, so before our daughter was born. So, yeah. you know, I was diagnosed in November um, of 2011 and my daughter was born in February 2012 so you know there's a lot that goes through your mind um and you know yeah so uh yeah we will would have been completely rocked you go from I remember myself um yeah life-changing first child on the way and then you say deep into the process and then all of a sudden you've been smacked between the eyes with this yeah how did you respond I mean what do you do there's a there's a there's a period of uncertainty there obviously yeah, um, look, you just got to stay focused. I think I think you sort of go into that automatic, practical sort of, or I did anyway, that mindset and not think too much um, because the underlying fear is always there. Is it going to be terminal? Is it going to come back or whatnot? Um, but you you haven't got time to waste almost thinking about that. And, and I don't use the word waste lightly because it is important, but because you've got – your wife pregnant and all about to give birth and it's a really special moment given it was our first child and we were told it might be difficult for us to have kids and all, all this sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, so you just got to put it aside and, and stay focused. And I sort of, um, I'm not a religious man, but I was brought up in a Buddhist sort of environment and with Buddhism you just look at, you know, shit happens essentially yeah. and you just got to... <laughs> Go with the flow and, and take, take, take it on the chin and keep moving forward. So I sort of took that sort of attitude towards my recovery and rehabilitation. But subsequently, that sort of added to the pain experience with 
scar tissue and things like that and sense sensitivity of my body to pain yeah. of course of course so look does it does are there any other chapters i guess before we sort of move on like there's there's three massive ones there um I, there's there's a lot we could unpack i guess the next step of this discussion as i said from the outset is to try and sort of dive in and and better understand um some of those strategies that you've kind of made a little bit of reference to in terms of um, what works for you and, and I guess how um, do you live a strong and fulfilling life as a, as a father and a husband and whatnot um, uh, in light of the fact that you do carry this persistent pain and, and it's, a, it's not just a, a personal experience for you, it's also a profession and there's a whole lot of other things that are sort of thrown in the mix there as well. Um, how, when you're talking with other men about these experiences, I feel... Uh, you know, there's a, we, we talked about this in, in a previous podcast, but there's almost a, a war story sort of component that we like to sort of um, uh, build in when we're talking with other men about our, our own sort of pain. And, and we don't tend to sort of go much deeper than that. You know, we kind of trade our war stories and then we sort of laugh it off and park it there. But then there's the, the piece that sort of we all naturally know sits below the surface, which is that at the end of the day, um, you know, we've got to manage that. Um, so how does that play out for you, Angela? Um, I, I think uh, I think you made a really important point. And I think um, as a therapist, you know, I I actually had a, ever since at my early on in my career, I had an interest in the psycholo- psychological aspect of pain. So I went actually went back to university, I got a postgrad in counselling. And to preempt that with my clients from a professional point of view, I actually... Uh, open, transparent about the difficulties and and my vulnerabilities because I think when you exchange the war stories, it just leaves it at that level, and and I think for someone uh, in the community, the lay person, the the average dad, it they they might not have the skills or the the invitation to open up because they don't know me from a bar of soap, really. Mm. Um, you know, so I I give them almost that invitation by opening up about myself and saying. It's not a comparison, but this is what I've gone through and sometimes it is hard and, and giving them the permission to feel crap if they have pain or acknowledge their frustrations with it because sometimes when you go through trauma or circumstances that that's unexpected, there is an underlying sense of frustration that builds up and you often end up with a short fuse. Mm. And it's important to recognise that because often what happens is you'll have that short fuse and I've done this with my family. Um, you, you'll have a go at them because they're the ones that you have a go at first because you've got to give a – you don't do that with your friends or your colleagues. No. But then you feel incredibly guilty. Um, and I think recognising that it's not because you're a bad person, it's just your brain trying to protect you and it's showing the frustration of it's not going the way you want it to try and take control. And, and having some strategies around that. And, and just openly, before we even get to strategies, just have a discussion about what that means to that person because it's very personal. Um, no one wants to yell at their kids or have arguments with their partners, especially built up on frustration of being able to not be able to deal with their pain or a sense of not being heard. Um, because really when you're frustrated at other people, it's that old rule off you know you point the finger at someone else three fingers point back at you and Mm. and we all know i think in fairness we all know that and then you feel incredibly rubbish afterwards um and so it's just about finding a way of saying that's it 
it's not that it's okay to yell or anything, but you understand the circumstance. You know, we're not trying to belittle it. You don't have to blame yourself. It's about recognizing it, accepting it, and then looking at, okay, how do I improve? Well, wow, there's some interesting aspects there. I mean, you touched on a couple of things. I, I had this sort of vision of someone, I guess, bringing you know, dinner table, if you will, and, and, and trying to bring their best self to the table. But it's been a really hard day. You know, I've been challenged on a pain front and maybe the few other things that are in the mix. Um, and as you say, uh, you know, maybe th- that might be boiling over and, and playing out in different ways in terms of the anger. And, and, and then you have your kids sitting there and they're mucking around yeah. and chucking the pizza and you're just <laughs> like, I just want a quiet dinner. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. and then you just might lose it a little bit with one. And then you're like, well, it's a bit, over- everyone knows it was overreaction, but for you, it wasn't because of this build up. Yeah. Um, and of course you feel bad for it. And it's just about then saying, okay, well, how do you recognize that so that you address it as much as you can? And I think with the right strategies over time, it might never go away because I think there's always an element of wanting a sense of control. And and you'll often find that people who have gone through that trauma or got that persistent pain often want to do some extreme activities mm. <laughs> as, a, as an outlet. And, and I don't think that's uncommon. And, you know, um, I ride motorbikes because it puts me on the edge a little bit, but also allows me a sense of control being on that edge. And yeah. it gives me a... So it's a different way of looking at it. Is, it's it, not is it a distraction regular. for you then, Angelo, in that sense? Like it, it, it forces you to be 100% present in the activity? That's and, what it is. It's yeah. a mindfulness activity for me. Yeah. And it allows me an escape, I guess. It's either that or stand-up paddleboarding or something like that. That just really allows me to have to be immersed in the area, in the, in the task for me to... To focus and it's not about necessarily quiet space focus on your breathing some people can't do that mm. it's just impossible um and so to try and get someone to just focus on your breath and sit in silence is hard and so what you want to do is get someone to focus on something they're passionate about or something they can actually immerse themselves in and we've just got to find that it's, Being mindful is about filling the mind with one thing, not nothing. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we've all got this sort of preconception in our minds in terms of what mindfulness is and you know, perhaps even meditation and some of these components as well. And um, and I know I've, I've, I've even had discussions with, with practitioners around my own pain and, you know, like people start thinking about yoga and these, these sorts of things. But for some people, as you say, it's, it's getting out on the motorbike and, and going for a ride or it's, um, you know, maybe it's surfing or maybe it's going for a swim at... I guess it's within your own means and and I guess there's also some of those sort of situations I would imagine that sort of adds to the frustration where for some guys, the thing that they actually enjoy doing is the thing that's been taken away because of their pain and and they're trying to sort of work their way back into it or through that. Um, do you come across that much in terms of some of the, the guys that, that, that you've had, um, I guess, touch points with from a professional perspective? Oh, yeah, a lot. And, and some of it is about they don't want to do it in halves. You know, it's all or nothing. If I can't play basketball, then I don't want anything to do with basketball. Yeah, right. I don't want to coach. I don't want to go support on the sidelines. If I can't play, it's not. So then you really, you know, and that's fair enough. You, you know, it's, it's, it's an all or nothing for them. But it's then about asking them, well, what would help you enjoy life a bit more? Because you don't want it just being about therapy. Because, you know, we, we don't, you don't want it just being a clinical rehab program. You want it to be a humanistic rehab program. Mm. So, and, and I think that's what we miss. You know, you might have every different 
therapist in your team, psychologist, physio, doctor, whatever. But if it's not a humanistic experience that's actually got some meaning behind it, your rehab strategy, then it still becomes a treatment and a sort of like a hospital medical model approach. Mm. So I think it's really important to find out, fine, if that's the case, because you don't want to increase anxiety or frustrations by getting them to do something they don't want. But what is it something that they can work towards? Um, and it might not be, and it's about setting expectations, I think, you know. Um, it's hard, mate, because as guys, we are, like I'm being really broad and generalistic here, um, but we like to fix things, you know, like we've got a problem, I'll yep. fix it. Like, what is it? What do we need to do? Um, and again, this podcast, uh, I'm really conscious I don't talk about myself too much, but I know that, that was definitely a starting point for me. It's like, okay, this is sore. This is hanging around longer than it should. How am I going to fix this? And you go down a rabbit a series of rabbit holes, I guess, in terms of trying to chase that fix. And, you know, when you don't land where you necessarily need to, um, you know, at various intervals there, then that just adds and compounds to that frustration. It can anyway, but it's certainly the case for me. So um, I would imagine that's a pretty common experience for a lot of guys. Brent, 100%. I mean, I've got a lot of guys and and girls, depending on the – really, it's their personality. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of teachers – uh, police, you know, any sort of uh, military sort of force where, where you, you just got or, or uh, tradies, you know, something's broken, it gets fixed. You find a solution. Um, and here we're saying, well, what if it can't get fixed? And so you just got to talk about the context of, you know, um, you have to service your car regularly, you know. Um, so whether it's broken or not, you still got to keep keep at it and work on it. You just reminded um, me, I didn't need to get my car service. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's about your expectations then. You know, what does fix look like? And, and having a really meaningful, authentic conversation around that because, you know, unless, otherwise what happens is that you do go down that rabbit hole and then it becomes all-encompassing and it becomes too much that you feel completely helpless and, and you don't have to feel that way. It's a feeling. Yeah, and sometimes the system just works against us in terms of, you know, as you say, the, the medical teams and the, and the practitioners and whatnot. You know, that, that diagnostic process sometimes just takes a long time and does require to be handed off and exploring different avenues. So um, as you say, it's a, it's a journey and that's sort of kind of what we, we sort of keep referring um, to it as. Like we're sort of coming to the end of our chat here, Angela, and before we go, like we wanted to sort of come back to you um, uh, and, and I guess sort of now that we know what we know in terms of your experiences and just the incredible, I guess, sort of set of circumstances that, that you've, been, you've faced and, and some of those challenges that accompany. But how is, how is this, um, again, chronic pain journey shaped you as a, as a husband and, and, and as a father? That's a really tough question to answer, but it's a good one. Um, I, I, I think it makes me realise that I still got to keep working on myself. That, um, you know, the pain almost reminds me that um, I am fallible, I guess, and and that it, it's something for me as a reminder to also appreciate what I do have because it could be a lot worse my situation, I guess, um, than what it is, and so it puts into context of you know having been hit with a petrol bomb, I might not have lived there, um, you know, flying with a collapsed lung without no, probably not. And with the cancer, you know, I don't, I don't really know with my type of cancer, they said that if it comes back, it, it's likely to come back aggressive. So I think when, when I have the pain, it almost reminds me, okay, I've had the pain, but I'm on a spectrum of 
it could be so much worse. Yes, it could be so much better, but um, it's just about, I guess, coming back to just trying to enjoy my time with my family, but not being so hard on myself if I do lose my temper or whatnot, just trying to learn from that. I'm not advocating being temp, you know, being yeah. aggressive with family or anything like that. But at the same token, for someone who's suffering with chronic pain, there needs to be an acknowledgement it is tough. And I think um, reflecting on that a bit more, I think it has helped me become a better dad. And also educating my kids that you could have pain, but you can still function. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't have to be at home. You don't have to be uh, disabled as such, that you could still function. That doesn't mean the pain's gone away, but uh, I guess that's an important lesson for them to know that there's still hope out there and, and you could still do well. I was going to ask that question, actually, just to sort of wrap things up. It was just in, in terms of their understanding of your journey and where you're at and I guess sort of, yeah, that, that completing that picture for them that, you know, dad's not in a good mood, mood at the moment, isn't a great day for whatever reason, but there's a, there's underlying factors here and um, we're walking this journey together. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think it's really helpful because, uh, I mean, I do have that conversation and I think it sort of, again, that uh, allows that vulnerability as a bloke and as a father that you can be vulnerable but still strong. And and it really allows, especially my sons, you know, I've got a daughter and two sons, allows them to not have to be macho all the time, that it's okay for them to injure themselves and cry, but know that you can still you can still get up and, and do things. Um, and it's okay to have the conversation to say what you can, you're having a tough day or not having a tough day. So I think indirectly, it's actually made me a better person, a better bloke, um, because I, I think I could see that I probably would not be in that sort of person if I didn't have this personal experience myself. I think I probably still worked in the industry, but I think I've just been able to have a a different level of understanding and appreciation, I guess, for the people that I try and support and help. That's really interesting. And, and yeah, I know we're building an audience here, so I'm not sure how many people are listening to these podcasts, but I know a lot of value there in terms of what you shared. Um, Angela, you've been a, a friend of, of Chronic Pain Australia. You've so, supported us recently with the um, National Pain Week campaign. Um, we'd like to call you a, a friend of the show. Um, so I'd like to pick this up and have a lot more discussion with you down the track if, if possible. But um, just in the interest of time, and uh, I just want to thank you today for this chat. I really enjoyed it. Um, and if you've got any recommendations on other areas that we should be exploring or people we should be talking to, um, I encourage you to let us know. But also, while we're at it, we're talking to an audience, um, please reach out to Chronic Pain Australia to... Um, uh, to, to let us know, um, yeah, others that we feel as though would be of value to adding into this uh, this particular area of focus. Um, anything Brilliant. else you wanted to add, Angelo, before we wrap it up? No, mate, thanks for the opportunity and I think you guys are doing some great work in the space with Chronic Pain Australia and, um, yeah, love your work, Brent. That's good. Keep Rick. this up. I think it's definitely needed, this sort of podcast, and um, I think it just allows people access to know that what they're going through is understood um, and that they're not alone. Brilliant. All right. We'll leave it there. Thanks, Angelo. Look forward to chatting next time. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening. Do you have feedback on today's show? We'd love to hear from you. Reach out via Chronic Pain Australia's social media channels.